Welcome to the 365th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer, author of the new novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer. Sawyer is one of only eight writers in history and the only Canadian to win all three of the science fiction field's top honors for Best Novel of the Year. The World Science Fiction Society's Hugo Award for his novel Hominids, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writer of America's Nebula Award for his novel, The Terminal Experiment, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for his novel, Mind Scan. Robert's latest novel is The Oppenheimer Alternative. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, yet, how would you describe the novel? It is what I call a secret history, although that's not a general fiction category that's out there, but a secret history of the Manhattan Project. Now, what's the difference between a secret history and an alternate history? Well, an alternate history is like uh, Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle or the TV series based on it, where some hinge point in history went differently and two timelines diverge. You tell the story about the timeline that isn't the one we happen to be in. A secret history instead tells of a whole raft of things going on behind the scenes that we didn't really know about but aren't contradicted by the information we do have. So uh, after the uh, Manhattan Project concluded by successfully creating the world's first atomic weapons, a few years later, J. Robert Oppenheimer uh, was put on uh, security um, clearance hearing. And he said to a reporter, if you, Mr. Reporter, standing there right in front of me, you really said this, real life, if you dig deeply enough, you'll find this is a much bigger story than just my security clearance. So as a novelist, well, that's that's a gift when somebody's actually said that, and nobody ever did find out what Oppie was referring to. 
I've written that story, and it's a science fiction story about the characters of the Manhattan Project, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Edward Teller, Hans Bethe, Enrico Fermi, Leo Zillard, all, and Albert Einstein, the greatest scientists of the 20th century. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus for writing the Oppenheimer alternative? Oh, very much so. A friend of mine named Liz Sano is a playwright in Montreal, and she said to me in 2015, five years ago now, the best play at the Montreal Fringe this year, you got to see it when it comes to Toronto, because uh, it was touring, is Jem Rolls, R-O-L-L-S. Jem Rolls has a play called The Inventor of All Things about Leo Zillard. And I thought, I kind of know that name, you know. I mean, he was a physicist. I knew that. Well, um, I, I decided to read up about Zillard, and I, I saw Jem's play when it did come to Toronto, and I became friends with Jem. And although Leo Zillard is the real father, in a very meaningful way, of the atomic age, he is the Hungarian physicist who first envisioned the atomic chain reaction that gives rise both to nuclear reactors, and he was there when the first one came online at the University of Chicago, and nuclear bombs, and he ghostwrote the letter that Albert Einstein signed that was sent to President Roosevelt to say, we have to get into this race to be the first country to develop an atomic bomb. So I read a lot about Zillard, but I got attracted to this character that kept intersecting with him, J. Robert Oppenheimer. But that's where it came from, uh, being inspired by a, a one-man show that had been done about one of the many larger-than-life characters that I went on to write about. And what was it about Oppenheimer that captured your interest? So I mentioned his security clearance hearings, right? Now, Oppenheimer was a genius. He was famous for wanting to be not only knowing that he was the brightest guy in the room, but making sure everybody knew he was the brightest guy in the room. Absolute genius. And yet his downfall, why he lost his security clearance, why he and his best friend, Hokan Chevalier, had their lives ruined after World War II when he was being questioned. He was asked by the prosecutor, why did you do that? And Oppenheimer's answer, this genius, this brilliant physicist was, and perfect honesty, because I was an idiot. You can't do that in regular fiction, Jeff. You can't do the idiot plot where the action only advances by your character doing something unfathomably well, as as Hokan Chevalier's best friend called it, unfathomable folly. You can't normally write fiction based on that. You know, come on, he's a bright guy. He's not going to do anything that stupid. But I was handed this reality that Oppenheimer's hemartia, his fatal flaw, as they would say in Greek tragedy, was this incredible belief at the moment that everything he was doing was brilliant and only in retrospect realizing that many times he had made the stupidest possible choice. It was such an intriguing dichotomy of character, the absolute genius who was his own worst enemy. I was drawn to that. And what was your research process for learning more about the Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer in this era of history? Right, because every character I wrote about, all those names I've already mentioned and more, were real human beings and 
famous human beings. So for each of them, there are significant biographies. And one of my great joys is that Martin J. Sherwin, co-author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Oppenheimer called American Prometheus, what a great title, American Prometheus, gave me a cover blurb for the book. He liked what I had done. Gregory Benford, one of our judges at the Writers of the Future contest that I'm also a judge for, who happened to have been, he's a physicist by profession, happened to have been uh, Edward Teller's graduate student, Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb. He said, Rob, you nailed these characters. Well, the research was reading all the biographies for those who had them, and conspicuously Oppenheimer does not, the autobiographies that these characters had written. And unlike people writing historical fiction set in Roman times or biblical times or the Middle Ages, you have it. I had film. I had some TV even. I had tons of audio recordings. I could see these guys in action, the way they gesticulated, the lilt and accent of their voices, the way they talked to each other, the way they talked amongst themselves, and the way they talked down to television interviewers or people they didn't think were quite at their level. And I just absorbed all that. I spent, I'm lucky, I'm a, I'm a successful author. I make a decent amount of money per book. So I was able to spend an entire calendar year, 52 weeks of full-time work, doing nothing but research before I wrote the first word of the Oppenheimer Alternative. Well, in your research, was there anything that particularly surprised you or that you discovered about the Manhattan Project and about this group of of real-life characters? Yes. I had been fed, along with just about everybody else in uh, in the Western world, the myth that it was an absolute military necessity to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's been the official American position. And ironically, and I'll say why in a moment, also the official Japanese position ever since those things happened 75 years ago. And what I discovered as I did the research was that the Japanese for a full year prior to the dropping of the bombs, had been making overtures to surrender to the Allied powers. They said, we want exactly one thing, one and only one condition. Our emperor, Hirohito, is divine to us. He must not face a war crimes trial. You can try anybody else, the prime minister, anybody, go after us, but not the divine emperor. He must retain his throne. And Hirohito did retain his throne for over 40 years after the end of World War II. We gave them that one concession, but we nonetheless held out and continued the war until we had opportunities to test both different, based on different kinds of physics, atomic bomb designs. The little boy that was dropped on Hiroshima and was thought almost certainly would work, but it was never even tested before it was used in battle. And the fat man, the problematic but more elegant design that was reserved for the second bombing. General Groves himself said on July 16, 1945, before any bombs had been dropped, immediately after the, uh, the first atomic bomb test at Trinity, Oppie said to him, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Now the war is over. And Groves said, and this is from Groves's biography, his own words, as published in 1962. Not new information, just ignored information. Groves said, yes, as soon as we drop two, not one, two bombs on Japan, because we're going to test both designs, and then we'll let them surrender. And what, which one of those designs ended up being incorporated in future nuclear uh, weaponry? Oh, the Fat Man design is much more sophisticated, a much better design. Um, and the difference is that the, uh, the uh, little boy design uses uranium, which has to be filtered. Uh, ure- uh, one isotope from another, uranium-235, which exists in very minute quantities in uranium ore, has to be filtered out from uranium-238, the more common but not fissionable isotope. And that's a very expensive, drawn-out process, whereas the fat man uses plutonium, which we can actually manufacture rather than having to filter out as an at- uh, from uh, what we can find in nature. So the plutonium bomb, the fat man design was in fact, and that's why Groves wanted to test both his bombs and make sure that they were equally devastating on specific targets that had been spared the firebombing of all the other cities in Japan, almost all the other cities in Japan. There'd been a group of cities held back deliberately to be test bed targets, pristine so that the actual effects of the two kinds of bombs could be contrasted and compared after they were both dropped in August of 75 years ago. Well, in addition to your novel writing, as you mentioned earlier, you're also a judge of the annual Writers of the Future contest. And I should add for the listeners, I was a finalist in the contest myself in 2000, and my story was published in the annual paperback anthology that's published every year. If someone listening isn't familiar with the Writers of the Future contest, can you explain how the contest works and your role as a judge? Sure. Writers of the Future, L. Ron Hubbard presents the Writers of the Future contest and its sister contest, Illustrators of the Future, are contests for beginners, either as writers or as illustrators, in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror fields. Quarterly, every three months, we have an open competition Anybody in the world can enter a short story uh, up to actually novella length or a uh, portfolio of their original art to be judged by the biggest names in the industry. I'm lucky enough to be a judge, but judges past and present include Frank Herbert, 
the author of Dune, who was a judge until he passed away. Orson Scott Card, the author of Ender's Game, who is still a judge. Uh, Anne McCaffrey, the author of The Dragon Riders of Pern, who was a judge until she passed away. Todd McCaffrey, her son, uh, who is a, a current judge. And the list goes on and on. Mike Resnick, who just passed away, a judge until the day he died. Jerry Pornell, who left us last year, a judge until the day he died, but still an active judge. His writing partner, Larry Niven, Nancy Kress, Nettie Okorafor, Jody Lidnai. We have the best of the best judging, and it is completely blind. We don't know your gender. We don't know your name. We don't know what country you're from. All we know is whether or not you're a good writer, and we have no shibboleths. Whatever you want to write, you write. We're we're looking for stories across the political spectrum. We love stories that explore social issues. We love explore, uh, stories that explore uh, gender issues. This is simply a wide open platform, and uh, all the details are at what can you guess is the website name? <laughs> Writersofthefuture.com. Great. Well, what are your earliest memories of writing and what was the eventual path to publication for you for your first novel that was published? I did not know the term. In fact, I don't think the term existed, but my first science fiction story absolutely is what we would call now fan fiction. Back in the days when the TV series, the original, not the remake, of Lost in Space was on the air, I think I was eight years old and I wrote Lost in Space a Lost in Space story, an original short story, very short, I'm a kid, uh, based on the characters, the robot Will Robinson, the Jupiter 2 from Lost in Space. And um, my path to publication was simply realizing that all of these books, my parents uh, encouraged my reading habit, and I was loving reading science fiction. I'd been hooked based on, as I mentioned, Lost in Space, and then the much more intelligent and much more watchable as an adult today, Star Trek franchise. My parents said, oh, he's watching this stuff on TV. Let's get him science fiction books. I read the science fiction books, realized as one does that they were written by real human beings and vowed to become one of those human beings myself. I started with short stories. I myself entered Writers of the Future early on. Um, I never got as far as you did. I only got honorable mentions. I got three of them and uh, sent my stuff out to short fiction markets to use those credentials to interest novel publishers. And now I've done 24 novels. Um, I've worked with four of the big five New York publishing houses, and I've won 63 different awards for my fiction, including the Hugo and the Nebula, the John W. Campbell Memorial Awards, all of which you mentioned at the outset. Well, are you working on another novel now? I am. I've just started working on something. I'm trying to come to grips, as I think everybody is, with what our world is going to be like post-COVID-19, our post-pandemic world. But in science fiction, you don't write a straightforward, well, by the year 2021, let us hope, or 2022 or 2023, seeming more likely every day, when this is finally over, how do we go back to the office? How do we go back to... No, 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 no. In science fiction, you use metaphors, masks, dislocations in space and time. So although the issues of how do we go back 
to dealing with people face-to-face when we've only been dealing with them virtually? How do we reboot our civilization and make it inclusive and make it work in a way that maybe it wasn't prior to this wake-up call? Uh, That's what I'm working on right now. And um, I've just literally this week started it on it, and it's going to be an exciting journey. Great. Well, given your success over the years with your writing and the 24 novels that you just mentioned, what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels? Number one is what you just said, write your own stories and novels. As I said, I didn't even know I was doing fan fiction, but my excuse, I was eight years old. If you're an adult, don't be writing Buffy. Don't be writing Star Trek. Don't be writing Star Wars. Uh, You will find, you might in fact even get published, even professionally in one of those commercial franchises. And what you will find is those franchises have fans and they care sweet bugger all about you. They want the next Star Wars book, the next Star Trek book, the next Buffy book, the next whatever franchise you might worm your way into book. But They don't want you. They don't even know your name. The only way to succeed in this field is to create your own IP, your own intellectual property, your own worlds, your own characters. Be the person that somebody else is dying to write fan fiction about. Make your own mark. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you enjoyed reading recently? So I'm always fascinated by the question of adaptation, partly because, uh, uh, you know, uh, my uh, novel Flash Forward was made into an ABC TV series, which was a very liberal adaptation. And I said to David Goyer and Brandon Braga, who wrote the pilot, excuse me, I don't care if it's liberal. My favorite adaptations have always been liberal. Uh, Planet of the Apes, 1968, is a very liberal adaptation of Les Planets de Sange, a French-language novel uh, by Pierre Boulle. Uh, Casablanca, my favorite movie of all time, very liberal adaptation of a crappy stage play called Everyone Comes to Rick's. Dr. Strangelove, the mordantly funny, dark, satiric uh, uh Cold War comedy by Stanley Kubrick based on a completely pedestrian, mainstream, Clancy-esque techno-thriller called Red Alert by Peter Bryant. Um, So uh, I'm fascinated by adaptation. So I've been reading some source material. Most recently, just last week, I finally got around to reading I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, which has been filmed not once, Not twice, but now three times. Prior to that, I read John Ball's terrific novel, um, In the Heat of the Night, which spawned the Sidney Poitier slash Rod Steiger Academy Award-winning movie, and also the TV series starring Carol O'Connor. And it's fascinating to see how much, you know, the screenwriters and the Directors always say, oh, we fixed it, we made it better, we did this, we did that. Nah, no, 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 no. (laughs) The heart and soul of so many of these works is right there in the novel. And uh, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, I'm also working in Hollywood on a regular basis. Um, I recently wrote an adaptation for a miniseries. Maybe it'll get made, maybe it won't, based on my novel, Legal Alien. I like to see the process. And I find it very instructive to learn that way. 
That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? 25 years ago, I was the first science fiction writer in the world to have a website. So I got in on the ground floor, got a great URL. It is sfwriter.com. S is in science, F as in fiction, writer.com. And on social media, I'm principally active on Facebook, Patreon, and Twitter. It's my full name with no periods or spaces. Robert J. Sawyer, all run together. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer, author of the new novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Robert, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Great.